you open your Bible, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 1? And uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Uh, Father, thank you uh, for this time uh, that we can spend uh, as your people around your word. Uh, Lord, we, we do humbly ask uh, for your help. Please help us to understand uh, what is written. Help us to understand uh, yourself better. And uh, may the, the truth uh, that we consider uh, change how we live. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you had to write down your favorite attribute of God, what would it be? Okay, or what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about God? Now, no doubt love uh, would be a popular opinion. I'm sure grace and mercy would poll well. God's power and his goodness would also rank highly. But I'm pretty sure God's invisibility wouldn't get a mention. I'd be very surprised if someone wrote that down as their favorite attribute. You know, this is an attribute that doesn't receive much attention because it seems to be less impressive and less governing on our lives compared to some of the other attributes of God. Okay, most people would believe it. Okay, yes, God is invisible. And yet most would probably have little to no idea as to why it matters that God is invisible. Because it's a truth that doesn't have too much impact on our lives. And that's why I'd like to spend our time unpacking the invisibility of God, which means God can't be seen. Okay, so this is another thing that God can't do. And I'd like to turn our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 1. So we're going to begin with verse 17, which says, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, and visible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, this verse is an outburst of praise, which is common in Paul's writing. Okay, he pauses his arguments, and then worshipful praise and adoration just comes pouring out of his hearts. He is so struck, he's so moved by what he's writing that he, he cannot help himself but to pause and unleash a flurry of praise. He has just been reflecting on the saving work of God. The fact that God the Father sent God the Son into this world to save sinners. And my friend, that is astonishing grace. And Paul reflects upon the mercy of God in saving him. Okay, he who was so hostile to the gospel, he who had persecuted the cause of Christ, he who was the chief of sinners, he who looked to be the most unlikely to embrace Jesus, and yet he had been miraculously and graciously saved he had obtained mercy the Lord had rained down grace upon him and as he reflected on this okay as he thought back to what God has done in his life he, he pauses his arguments okay, he lays that aside you know, that that can wait and he responds in worship he was so moved by the gospel 
He was so touched by God's grace that he couldn't remain unmoved. He couldn't be unaffected, but he had to praise the Lord. He he couldn't help himself. He felt awe and adoration swelling up inside him and he couldn't contain it. It was like the balloon. It can't hold any more air, so it bursts. And here Paul bursts and praise and worship comes flowing out. And this is common in Paul's writing. We saw this at the end of Romans 11, last Lord's Day. And in God's providence, we face it again in this text. And I believe the Lord has something that he wants to teach you. Something that he wants to teach me. Something that he wants to teach us as a church. And here's the lesson. It's very easy for our church. Here at Condal Park, we endeavor to exposit the scriptures. We strive to share the gospel, to preach Christ, to teach theology and doctrine. And there is a real danger that, that we hear these wonderful things so often... And yet we remain completely unmoved. Sure, we may understand the gospel really well. We may have quite a good grip on theology. And yet it's not leading to praise and worship. Okay, you have a full head but an empty heart. That's not how it's meant to be, my friend. Okay, theology is meant to lead to doxology. Theology fuels worship and worship is governed by theology. Okay, that they're inseparable. And yet I know personally, okay, okay, this is for me. I can write a sermon. I can spend 20 hours studying a text. I can be teaching on something glorious. I can understand it well. I've got an academic grasp. I can pull it apart. I can defend it. I've researched it well. I've written what I think is a good sermon. And yet I can remain cold and unmoved. And then I have to repent. And I have to cry out to the Lord, Lord, please warm my heart. I should be thrilled. Can you identify with that? Does that happen in your life? You remain unmoved, unaffected. You don't respond in praise and worship. You know, this is a warning for us as individuals and for us as a church corporately. May we not have full heads, but empty hearts. And may what we know about our God, And may what we have experienced in Christ and in the gospel result in praise and worship to come pouring out in our lives. May we be so consumed by God's grace that we can't help ourselves but to be filled with awe and admiration and to burst out in praise. That is the right and appropriate response. Now in Paul's moments of praise... He reflects upon the character of God. You know, his character makes him infinitely superior to any other king. And his character ensures that he has the capacity to save sinners. Okay, that's the thought that the Apostle Paul has on his mind in context. Okay, and this is God. This is how he describes him in this outburst of praise. He says God is the eternal king. So he's the sovereign ruler over all things. He's ruling, he's reigning. This is an eternal rule, past, present, and future. God is immortal, so he's not subject to corruption or decay. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get weak. 
He doesn't change. He cannot die. He is the only wise God. So he alone is God. There is no other. There's no one like him. And he is infinitely wise. That's a marvelous description. But he also adds that God is invisible. Now, that doesn't seem to be as impressive as some of the other qualities that it is listed alongside. You know, these other attributes, they're like the celebrities, but invisibility, this is the normal person. The other attributes, they're the Lamborghini, but this one feels more like the family van. The other attributes, they're like the massive mansion with the amazing views, but this attribute is like the three-bedroom shack in the suburbs. Okay, it, it doesn't feel okay, as impressive as some of the other qualities, but it's interesting that in the final chapter of this book, okay, chapter 6, Paul has another outburst of praise. And in verse 16, he says that God is one whom no man hath seen nor can see. So again, he mentions the invisibility of God. So this book ends this epistle in the first chapter and in the last chapter. So it's obviously important that God cannot be seen. And the apostle makes it clear that nobody can see him, nor has seen him. Okay, he is beyond human sight. He's beyond human comprehension. And this is the clear testimony of Scripture. This is not something invented by Paul. Okay, Exodus 33:22. Okay, I've listed these on your outline sheet. It says, okay, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Okay, Moses wanted to see God's glory. That was his request. But this was signing his death certificate. Okay, no one can see God's full glory and live. Deuteronomy 4.15 Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Okay, Moses made it clear that although they heard God, they didn't see him. John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. That's very clear and an undebatable claim. John 4.24, God is a spirit. Okay, that explains why he is invisible. He doesn't have a physical body. Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the invisible God. Okay, again, God is the invisible one. And Hebrews 11.27, by faith, he, that's Moses, forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So again, God is considered to be invisible. So this is the clear testimony of the Bible. God can't be seen. And with that in mind, I want to ask three questions that naturally flow out of this reality of God's invisibility. And this will help us to comprehend and appreciate the necessity and importance of God not being able to be seen. So question number one, does this mean that God doesn't exist? You know, perhaps you're here and you were thinking, well, well, preacher, that's pretty convenient that God is invisible. You may be thinking, well, of course he's invisible. He must be invisible because he's not real. He's not true. This is just another part of the elaborate fabrication that is the Bible. Maybe that's 
how you're thinking. Or if you're a Christian, okay, if you were asked this question, okay, if this argument was put to you, how would you answer it? Okay, well, a question. This is how I would answer it. Okay, do you need to see something for it to exist and be real? Okay, do you need to see something in order for it to exist or be real? And the answer is very obvious. You can't see electricity. You can't see gravity. You can't see the wind. You can't see air. And yet no sane person would deny their existence. So we don't need to be able to see something to determine whether it is real. Now what is interesting, when it comes to the question of the existence of God, the Bible doesn't seek to prove it, but it assumes it. And in fact, it assumes it from the very first verse. Okay, what's the first verse of the Bible? In the beginning, God. Okay, there it is. From the first words, it assumes God's existence. And nowhere in the Bible will you find a detailed discourse proving the existence of God. Okay, it's only the theology books that do that. Okay, the Bible does tell us of the necessity of faith. Okay, believing in something that we can't see. But understand, this is not some blind hope, but rather it's a steadfast confidence in the available evidence. My friend, understand God has revealed himself. Theologians call this general revelation. Everybody can know that God exists. And I would argue that everybody does know that God exists. Okay, let me explain. Okay, creation testifies to God's existence. Okay, Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. Okay, evidence of God is all around us. Okay, creation is singing a song about God. It's preaching a sermon about him. Okay, and for the Christian, don't miss that. Okay, look around you. Okay, see how creation points you to God. Okay, but, but creation, it's singing, it's preaching a sermon about God. The question is, okay, will you listen? Okay, and as a result of creation, everybody can know God exists because everybody is part of the creation. But furthermore, everybody does know that God exists. Okay, God has written that on our hearts. Okay, that's how he has made us. But my friend, understand, we suppress that truth. We ignore it. We push it down deeper and deeper. Okay, that's the teaching of Romans chapter 1. Okay, but my friend, you know deep down that God exists. That's how he made you. Okay, you have a consciousness of God down deep. You may have to dig for a while because you put lots of junk on top of it. You're trying to suppress it. You're trying to ignore it, but it's still there. Start digging. Stop suppressing it. Okay, we all have this inner witness to God's existence. But there are some other proofs of God's existence. Okay, these are the typical ones listed in your standard systematic theology book. Okay, big names, but I'll endeavor to explain them. There's the ontological arguments. Okay, God's existence is proven by man's thought that God exists. Okay, to simplify, if God doesn't exist, 
we would have never thought of such a concept. That's one line of argument. The next is the cosmological argument. Okay, the existence of the universe means there must be a creator God. Where did the universe come from? Okay, the teleological argument. Okay, the existence of design in the universe means there must be a designer God. Okay, there's intricate design. Okay, it's, it can't happen with a, a big bang or by random chance. Okay, the anthropological argument. The unique nature and character of humanity means there must be a relational God. And then there's the moral argument. Okay, the existence of morality means there must be a governing God. Because if there's not, what or who is the standard to say murder and rape is wrong? Okay, if there's no moral standard, what are you basing that on? Okay, you could say it's wrong, but what if I think it's okay? Okay, who, who or what is the standard? Okay, we need a God to have moral absolutes. So there's more than enough evidence. And you don't need to see God in order to believe. Now, perhaps you're thinking, well, do you know what? If I, if I saw God, if I saw God right now, I would believe. Well, let me tell you, you're wrong. And this is why you're wrong. God was on earth. Jesus was here for 33 years and he was visible. People could see him. People saw his miracles with their own eyes and yet the vast majority remained in unbelief. Okay, it's not an evidence problem. It's a heart problem. It's not an evidence problem. It's a heart problem. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So the fact that God is invisible, this is not the problem when it comes to believing. Your heart is the problem. The question I pose, why continue in unbelief? Why continue to suppress the truth of God's existence? God is real even though you can't see him. So question two, why does it matter that God is invisible? You know, maybe you're surprised that I'm preaching a whole sermon focusing on the reality that God can't be seen. I understand that. You're like, Brennan, you could have said this in like two sentences and sat down. Okay, why is it worth a whole sermon? How's it going to, to help me in my day-to-day -day life? Okay, this is a question that we tend to ask a lot. Okay, well, what's the practical ramifications? Okay, how, how does it benefit me? How is it going to help me? And only when I know what I can get out of it, then I will pay attention. Now, practicality is, is very important. Okay, we started to consider Romans 12, which is all practical. But we need to understand this. When it comes to who our God is... It's worthy of consideration, even if we can't see how it helps us. Because God is worthy. Okay, okay, this is part of what makes him so glorious and so wonderful. Hence, it's worthy of our attention. And understand, it's okay just to stand there in awe of our God, even if it doesn't seem to give you steps, helps, and hints to navigate life. Okay, sometimes we just need to be struck by our God. In fact, we probably need that a lot more than any of the helps and aids that we're chasing. We need to be struck by our gods. Okay, and this is certainly the case with his invincibility. But by pondering it, we, we should just be struck by our gods. 
But the Bible does give us okay, two reasons, at least two, why God's invisibility matters. The first is this. It protects us from idolatry. Okay, when it comes to God, okay, we are not to have images, statues, or relics. Okay, we're not to have any physical or man-made substance that represents God and then worship that particular idol. Okay, God is very clear in his word. It's seen in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments reveals God's will. And we're told that we're not to have any graven images. And understand, often these images would replace, okay, wouldn't replace God, but rather they're a visual representation of God. Okay, so it's not the case with the Jews that every idol was about Baal or some other Canaanite god. Often they would craft something and try and worship Yahweh through that idol. Okay, but hence that there is two commandments. Okay, the first two commandments. Thou shalt have okay, no other gods. So you must worship the right God. But then the second commandment is about graven images. Okay, why does he say that? Well, that's about how we worship God. Okay, so it's important to not only worship the right God, but worship the right way. Okay, that's the point of the first two commandments. And this is one reason why God is invisible. Because understand this, if we knew what he looked like, we would try and make an image. We would try and make a statue. We would make some other object and then we would worship that object. Why? Because we're idolaters in our hearts. As has been famously said, our hearts are idol factories. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 teaches this. It says, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves... For ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Okay, God spoke, but they couldn't see him. God's invisible. Why? Verse 16. Lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure. So the Lord ensured that his people didn't see him. He remained invisible. And the reason he gives is lest they make a graven image. He knew the hearts of his people. If they saw God, they would craft something to represent him and then worship it. And hence God is invisible because this is in harmony with how he is to be worshipped. Okay, it's in harmony with how he says in his words how he wants to be worshipped. Okay, John chapter 4, verse 20. Four, very famous portion from scripture. It's Jesus with the woman at the well. And Jesus is teaching her. And he says, God is a spirit. So in other words, no physical body, meaning he's invisible. And then he says this. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So we worship the God that we can't see. He's a spirit. We don't bow to an idol. We don't worship an image. But our worship is to be conducted in harmony with the Bible. Okay, that's the truth element. So, so everything that we do needs to be in harmony with the scriptures. We can't do anything in our worship that contradicts the Bible. Otherwise, that's not acceptable in God's sight. And we are to worship in spirits. 
Okay, that's with engaged heart and engaged mind. Okay, it's an internal act, not a mere outward show. Okay, and how easy it is to you know, go through the motions, but we're not engaged internally. And, you know, may we as a church okay, be worshipping our God appropriately. Okay, may our corporate worship be in harmony with the scriptures. And may we ensure that well, we're not just going through the motions. So easy to do that. Okay, where we're worshipping, but we've got a disengaged heart and a disengaged mind. Okay, we can sing the words, but we're not singing about, sorry, we're not thinking about what we're singing. Okay, someone can pray and we just tune out. During the sermon, we're, we're off with the pixies. Okay, pixies, pixies, pixies. I just want to say that. And if you're just like, what are you talking about? That means you were off with the pixies. Okay, it happens. Okay, we're here. We're here physically, but we're not really there. Or, or we can put on a, an outward show to impress others, but in, internally, we're not there. My friend, that's not pleasing to God. He wants to be worshipped in the right way, spirit and in truth. And that is one reason why he is invisible. The second reason, and this is really important, it protects us from dying. Okay, it protects us from dying. If we saw God in all of his glory, you know, if it wasn't just a, a glimpse like we see a couple of times in the Bible, but if we gazed at God, we would die. We would be consumed we have more chance of walking on the sun than we do looking at god moses desired to see god he requested show me thy glory but god said exodus thirty three twenty, thou canst not see my face for there shall no man see me and live okay god is too glorious God, God is too majestic. God is too holy for us to even gaze upon. Okay, we would be instantly consumed. And hence, it's an act of God's mercy and kindness that he is invisible. Because it would kill us to see him. And here I want to consider what, what I personally believe is a big problem for us. Okay, we can have weak and imbalanced views of God. Okay, understand God is so pure. God is so holy. God is so majestic that one glimpse of him, it would destroy us. Okay, let, let that sink in. It's hard for us to imagine that. But this is how glorious, this is how holy he is. And that ought to produce fear. Okay, that, that we should have a fear of the Lord. That there should be a trembling. That there should be a respect. That there ought to be some trepidation when it comes to God. And I think this is often lacking. Why? Well, we tend to stress that the love of God. We, we stress the grace and mercy of God. Okay, we, we really highlight his fatherhood. All wonderful realities. Okay, and these are all things that comfort us. But we can get imbalanced. 
And this is what ends up happening. We end up viewing God as this loving teddy bear who just showers us with, with grace and love, and that's it. Okay, we view him as our pal, as our buddy, and then we can be very casual about God. And, and I wonder if that describes you. I think that's quite pervasive. And hence, we need to take heed to the scriptures. We should not be casual about God. That there ought to be an awe. There ought to be a respect if we fully grasp who God is. There should be a fear. Okay, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There should even be a, a healthy trepidation. My friend, God is not trivial. He is so holy. He is so pure. He is so glorious so majestic that just, just a glimpse would instantly consume us do you remember Manoah Manoah was Samson's dad and he said we shall surely die because we've seen God he got it he understood how holy glorious and majestic God is what, what about Isaiah what did he see well he, he saw the train of the robe of the Lord. And he was completely broken. He, he fell flat on his face, pleading for cleansing. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Because he got a small glimpse of God's holiness. And we need a healthy dose of these aspects of God to correct our imbalances. His holiness and glory ought to infuse us with a reverential fear and awe. Okay, and if you want practical ramifications, if you have this, you will obey God. Okay, this is why God's invisibility matters. Because if we could see him in his full glory, we would not live. Question number three. What about Jesus Okay, understanding that God cannot be seen. If there was a time in history when God revealed himself, when the invisible becomes visible, that would obviously be a significant moment, wouldn't it? And here's the thing. Jesus Christ, when he became man, when he took upon himself humanity, this revealed God to us. Why? Because Jesus is God. Colossians 1.15 says this. Who, okay, who, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the perfect and absolutely accurate image of God. This declares that Jesus is both the representative and the manifestation of God. Jesus was a visible, tangible, and exact representation. And understand the phraseology that Paul employs in Colossians 1, it does not merely mean that Jesus was similar to the Father. If that, was, if that is what Paul was trying to get across, there is a Greek word that he could have used to make that point. But rather, he employed this term, and it proves that Jesus is God just as the Father is God. John 1, 1, Jesus is the God, not a God. God the Son, God the Father, they are one and equal. Okay? It means that Jesus is the very stamp of God the Father. He's the perfect representative because he is God. 
Okay, he revealed to us the invisible God. And what that means is if you want to know God, then you look at Jesus. He is the vis- visible expression. We see this also in John 1.18, which says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Okay, this word declared, very interesting. It's where we get the English word exegete. Okay, we talk about exegesis in preaching. It means to clarify the meaning of a text. So Jesus, he exegeted the Father. He's the exposition of a hidden reality. So if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And you cannot know God without Jesus. Okay, understand that. You cannot know God without Jesus. And that is why every other religion is a fraud. It's all to do with Jesus. But my friend, let this sink in. This is the wonder of the incarnation. Jesus made the invisible God visible. God dwelt with sinful man. That the creator lived with the creation. That's astonishing. Now sure, the deity was veiled. And that is why man didn't instantly die when they saw Jesus. But this is a glorious reality. The invisible God made himself visible. But the question is, why? Why did he do it? Surely it would need to be for for some significant and monumental purpose. Why did the invisible God become visible? And please hear this. This this is the greatest news that you can ever hear. Everything pales into insignificance compared to what I'm about to tell you. The invisible God became visible to provide salvation for mankind from sin. Isn't that amazing? That is why the invisible God became visible. Jesus revealed his mission in Luke 19.10 where he said, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Okay, this is why the invisible became visible. And understand, if he never came, if he never departed heaven to accomplish the mission, we could never experience salvation. We could never be forgiven. We could never be made right with God. It's important that we all understand that we have a serious problem. Okay, it's one that we're born with, and that is sin. Okay, the Bible tells us that we were created by God, okay, but we rebelled. We we committed treason and the whole human race as a result was plunged into sin. And now you are born a sinner, meaning you are a sinner by nature. And then you choose to sin. So you are a sinner by choice. Why do you sin? Well, you sin because you love it. And that's true of everybody. The Bible says for all have sinned. There's no exception. You are not the exception. Okay, that there are books of offenses that you have committed against God. We're all wicked. We're all corrupt in our natural state. There's nothing good in us. Okay, and understand that God must deal with sin. And as a result, your sin separates you from God. It actually makes you his enemy. Okay, there's hostility between you and God. And your sin means that you're not permitted to enter into his heaven. But you will spend eternity 
in hell. That, that's the payment for your sin. Okay, it's death. Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. Okay, that's hanging over your head. Okay, Pitcher, you are in the gallows. Okay, the noose is tied. And when the floor is removed at death, you will spend eternity in hell, conscious torment forever. And understand, that's the just punishment for sin. Okay, that's our predicament. Okay, natural man, that's where we're at. And that is the mission that Jesus was sent on. To provide a way for salvation. That is why the invisible became visible. And Jesus took on human flesh. Fully God, fully man. He left heaven's glories. He lived with the sinful creation. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled God's law perfectly. And he went to the cross. Where he took your sin and my sin upon himself. And he had the father's wrath poured out upon him and he died and he did that for you but the good news is that jesus rose again he he arose victorious over sin death and the grave and he has provided a way for us to be saved to experience forgiveness to be made right with god my friend if you repent of your sin That is, acknowledge you are a sinner. Lord, I have sinned. I have sinned against you too many times to count. If you turn from that and run to God, believing that Jesus is God and that he died, was buried, and rose again to pay the price for your sin, then you will be saved. It's as simple as that. You will be forgiven. You won't go to hell. Your sin will be taken from you and you will be given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is God's gift of salvation and it's extended to all. But you need to take the gift. You need to open it. You you need to accept it and embrace it. Will you accept that gift? This is why the invisible God became visible. It was to provide undeserving sinners like you and me salvation that's our god what a great god we serve amen let's pray father i do thank you uh, for for who you are and uh, lord i do pray that if there be uh, you know one here tonight that doesn't know you i do pray that they'd make today uh, the day of their salvation and lord for those of us uh, who who are christians help us to be struck uh, by who you are by how great you are and help us to apply uh, the, the message where relevant in our lives we pray these things in jesus name amen i'd like to invite